0: Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 20 through 30, which is found on your Pew Bible on page 816. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Corzin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and my burden is light. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever.
1: Well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, uh, we want to obey that command again, and even as we uh, come to uh, think together about your word, we want to come to you we don't want to just come to the Bible I don't want to just come to this pulpit Uh, I don't want my friends uh, to just come to this point in the service Uh, together we join and we lift our hearts to you and we say by your spirit would you enable us to come to you and to find rest in you to take your yoke upon us to learn from you because you are gentle you're lowly in heart and We want to find rest for our souls in you, and we want to rejoice at how uh, easy your yoke is. Let us feel that this morning and how light your burden is. We want to feel and rejoice in that today. And Lord, especially we pray for those who have not yet come to you for the first time, that you would draw them in your great kindness and mercy today, and that this would be the day of their salvation. And we pray in your name. Amen. Well, what, is, uh, what does Jesus mean when he says, uh, really when he commands that we come to him? Um, that, you know, some, we'll hear people use, take the Lord's name in vain sometimes and say, uh, come to Jesus what does Jesus mean when he's not taking his own name in vain? Um, last week we thought about the answer to that question from the negative side, you know what what it doesn't mean and we thought about three three things that it doesn't mean and sometimes it's helpful to to identify negative uh, contrasts. but this morning, uh, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper and as we're now uh, the first, on the first Sunday in Advent, I want to think uh, with you from our text about what it means positively. And, uh, you know, at the most basic level, what we see is that the Lord Jesus is calling us to enter a relationship with Him and to enjoy a relationship with Him. And this morning, um, I just want to think about four aspects of that relationship that uh, we can see from our text this morning. Uh, Jesus is painting the portrait of a relationship that first is universal Uh, A relationship, uh, secondly, a relationship that is between unequals. Uh, Thirdly, he is uh, showing us a relationship uh, that is defined by great reversals. And then uh, finally, we're going to see this morning that he is uh, calling us into a relationship with him that is continual. So universal, unequals, great reversals, and continual. Let's think first about this uh, idea that Jesus is... Uh, calling us into a relationship that's universal. And what I mean by that is this summons, particularly in verses 28 through 30, that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. This summons in verses uh, 28 through 30 is universal in two senses. The first sense is that it is a call, it is a command that is universal in the sense that it opens an opportunity For anyone. But at the very same time, so it's inclusive, it's radically inclusive. But at the very same time, it is also radically exclusive. And it's universal in the sense that it imposes an obligation on everyone. And so let's think first about this idea of how inclusive it is, that it's for anyone. Friends, Jesus Christ is no respecter of persons. Um, His call is for anyone. Listen to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That call is as broad as there are people, as broad as people have needs. There's no restriction on it except that it is for those who labor and are heavy laden. If from beginning to end, right, is his salvation is for all people and all peoples. I bring you, the, the angels say, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. Right today, there is born for you a Savior. All peoples. This breath is uh, breathtaking, isn't it? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. The willingness of Jesus, his heart, his his love, his power. These things are not constrained. I just want you to to be amazed by the fact that the willingness of Jesus, the, the heart of Jesus, the power of Jesus, his ability to save is not constrained or limited or influenced in any way by any of the factors that determine differences among people in the world the differences that we live and die by in the world. Ethnicity has nothing to do with it. Nationality has nothing to do with it. Age has nothing to do with it. IQ has nothing to do with it. Achievements have nothing to do with it. Wealth has nothing to do with it. Jesus doesn't care about any of this. Your moral track record doesn't matter. Your religious background doesn't matter. Your history is irrelevant. Because in the end, Jesus knows that every human being has exactly the same resume. I love that about the gospel. That gives me such joy. I love John 6.37. This was a promise that I spent a lot of time in seminary, uh, meditating on and and, uh, praying through and rejoicing over. I just commend it to you. I think about it often. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And you know the second half? And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you hear that? I mean, just take the measure of the breadth of Jesus' heart from that whoever... Right? Or that come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, all who labor and are heavy laden. That's the measure of Jesus Christ's heart. So whatever caricature you might have carried in here about Jesus' willingness to save, on the authority of God's word, I just encourage you, I plead with you, to jettison the caricatures and the cartoons of Jesus and deal with the one who who really is, the only Jesus there really is, who looks at the world and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, without any any restriction based on anything about you except your willingness to admit your need. That is awesome. So last uh, Sunday, Maria and I, uh, we went to uh, see the Messiah. That was at the Bob Carr Theater and the Orlando uh, Messiah Choral Society, or I'm not sure what the name is, but all those words were in the title. Just not sure what order. Uh, and we went to the Messiah. And it was great. I'd never been in the Bob Carr before. And that's a big place. And there were thousands of people in there. And it was really interesting. I've listened to the Messiah for the whole time I've been a Christian. And I listen to it every year multiple times at Christmas and Easter. And I noticed something in last week's performance that I had never noticed the whole time I've been listening to Messiah. The end of the first part of the Messiah, uh, part one, is uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, the, the verses that we're thinking about. And uh, Handel breaks it up into two parts. He does uh, one part that is uh, verses uh, 28 and 29, and then a separate part that's verse 30. 28 and 29 uh, is sung by a soloist, and then 30 is sung by the whole choir. But Handel messes with the pronouns in verses 28 through 29. And you know how much I love pronouns. After all these years, you've got to know that, right? So, suddenly it stood out to me. Whereas Jesus says in 28 and 29, look at this, he says, come to me, first person, objective pronoun, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I, first person, right, pronoun, I will give you rest. Take my first person possessive pronoun, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, first person, objective pronoun, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. What Handel does is he turns all those pronouns from the first person to the third person. So here's how it's sung. Come to him, all who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly in heart. And it just, it just took my breath away because what was happening, I saw what Anna was doing, is that he had turned his soloist, by this point the Messiah, he had turned his soloist into a preacher. And she was calling out in the in the name of Jesus Christ to that whole assembly of thousands of people who none of whom had been dragged into that theater and who had willingly come to sit under a sung gospel presentation for two and a half hours. And I thought of all the people in there and Jesus' news, Jesus' willingness, there was no qualifications except if you would just admit that you are weary and heavy laden. And if you come to him, you will find rest for your souls. And I thought about all those people and all that need, how broad that was, and yet how narrow at the very same time. Because unless they came to him, there would be no rest for their souls See, every person you meet, friends, every person I meet, anyone we speak to about Jesus Christ, we can assure them that if they come to Jesus, regardless of their background, if they come to Him, obey obey His summons, and come not with any deeds of their own, but admitting their needs, we can assure them that He will never turn them away. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done or what they've not done. If they come to Jesus, He will receive them, and He will keep them. That has electric implications for our witness and mission. But not only is this for anyone, it's also for everyone. It's radically exclusive because Jesus Christ is no respecter of persons, friends. And that means that there is no one we're going to interact with. There's no one that Jesus interacted with, acted with for whom he did not know and we should not know that there is only one way for this person to be reconciled to God. There's only one way for them to find rest for their souls. Friends, there's only one way for you or I to find rest for our souls, and it is by coming to Jesus, not any other way. There is only one mediator between God and man. There is only one way to the Father. There is only one ultimate truth. There is only one life giver and rest giver. And no one can come to God apart from Jesus Christ. That's why he's preaching. And so this gospel that we've been entrusted with, this Savior that we have been given the great privilege of knowing, is universally open in the opportunity that he extends and universally narrow in his insistence that we must come to him if we want rest for our souls, because he is no respecter of persons. He knows that no one has a sufficient record or will find a sufficient sufficient shelter to not need him. He knows that about himself. Do you know that about yourself? And do you feel that not only about yourself, but about every non-Christian that God has put in your life? I was listening to something this week. It was a, it was a, a discussion, a roundtable on evangelism. And one of the men near the very end of the roundtable is very convicting. And so I was just praying, Lord, because really I felt for the first 58 minutes of this thing, I, I kept, you know, crawling on the ground. I thought, oh, I'm the worst evangelist ever. I just was praying, Lord, give me something that I can take away from this with, uh, other than feeling lousy about myself. And one of the men in the round table... See, I struggle just like you. Okay? I, I battle with cowardice just like you. Okay? Just like you. And one of the men said something at the end. He said, you know, many years ago, I just started praying that God would make it harder for me to not share the gospel than to share the gospel. And I thought, that's it. So I have started praying that. Oh, Lord, make it harder for me not to share the gospel than to share the Secondly, this is a relationship between unequals. And there's two senses in which I mean this. First, uh, this relationship into which Jesus calls us is a relationship between unequals in the sense that Jesus is our master. Do you notice that? He's not addressing us as equals here. He's commanding us. These aren't invitations. These aren't just calls. These are commands, friends. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you And learn from me Right? Uh, Jesus is addressing us As a master addresses his servants We get this As a king addresses his subjects As a ruler addresses those who are ruled As a teacher addresses his students We get that That makes sense to us Uh, We are his servants We are his students We are his subjects That makes sense to us He is the master And outwardly If you don't think about it any deeper than that, this just looks and feels like every other relationship we have where we find ourselves in a hierarchy of power and authority. And so there's a sense in which you might, if you just are thinking superficially, you might say, here we go again. Here's another religious bully. Here's someone else who is trying to get power over me. And if you've ever been abused by someone in power or authority over you, you are going to be... You're going to be deeply suspicious of that kind of claim. But friends, you know, that's not the whole story here. It is absolutely true that Jesus is unequal to us in his glory and in his authority as our master. And we need to get that. And without taking anything away from that, I'm now going to say something that is equally a part of the story. And it's this. that The second reason that Jesus is unequal to us is that he is our servant. See, when you enter this relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not entering a relationship with a buddy or a peer or somebody who merely comes alongside you. You are not entering a relationship with an encourager. You know, as though, as though Jesus were just somehow the best friend that you've never had. He is above us, friends. He's the king. But what's amazing about this inequality in Jesus' kingship is how he wields his authority and power. And what did he do? How did he wield his power and authority? How did he wield... See, this is where we move from caricature of Jesus Christ to the real Jesus Christ. This is where you can't keep him at arm's length anymore because this is so wonderful. You see, what the what the scriptures tell us, what the Jesus who invites us in Matthew 11 did with his authority, what the Jesus who commands us in Matthew 11, 28 through 30 does with all of his greatness is he wields all of that superiority over us he wields it not by to to keep himself above us and away from us but he wields it in order to place himself beneath us as our servant to stoop beneath us And he did that in every chapter of his ministry. He did it in incarnation. Right? He was born. He was an, he was, before that, he was an embryo. What enabled him to be an embryo? His greatness. His infinite power. What was the measure of his glory? is that he made himself the one who is infinitely immense, who is everywhere, right? Who's omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. What does he do with all of that greatness? He makes himself willingly. He submits to being microscopic so that you couldn't even see him apart from a microscope if you'd had one. He took on our flesh and blood in his greatness and then in his life of obedience he he lived what did he do with his greatness he submitted himself to his own very law as a man as a child as a teenager as a toddler living under his own law fulfilling it and in his death Offering himself up in our place, humbling himself. This was the lowest place on planet Earth. The incarnation was the highest place. The the manger in Bethlehem was the highest place that Jesus Christ ever occupied on planet Earth. Every step, every breath, every movement from that point forward was a step down. Care, that, that's what he did with his greatness. That's how he stewarded his power and his authority, so that he would go all the way down to the bottom of the cross. And be under God's judgment against all the sins of his people from across all the nations and across the span of world history. Put himself in the lowest of all places on planet earth. That's what he did as our master, making himself our servant. And then the amazing news of the New Testament is he was raised, Paul says, for our justification. He gave himself as a servant, the son of man. He didn't come to be served right? But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then when he was raised from the dead, Paul says in Romans 4.25, he was raised for our justification, serving us in his resurrection. And then, friends, how is it that you and I became Christians if we are Christians, brothers and sisters? How is it he came to us again And gave himself again as a servant to us in the offer and proclamation of the gospel. He didn't leave the gospel in heaven for us to climb up and retrieve it. He brought it to us. And Paul says something in Ephesians 2 that I love. Ephesians 2.17. He says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away. So if you become a Christian today, it's not because I'm preaching. You know why you're going to become a Christian today if you do? You're going to become a Christian today for one reason and one reason only. It's because Jesus Christ himself comes here and preaches peace to you in the power of his spirit and his word. He's humbling himself just to be here. Right? Right? That he would designate little pieces of bread and juice of grapes to illustrate to us the most amazing event in the history of the universe? He's made himself our servant, friends. And we needed him to be both. We needed him to be this one who had the highest of hearts and the lowliest of hearts. We needed him to be both, friends, because our hearts have not soared where they ought to soar to the glory of God. And we needed somebody whose heart would soar in our place, who that would be high in the ways of the Lord, and his was. And, and we needed the same Savior also to be willing in our place to have the lowliest of hearts to go to the lowest place for us. And he did. He did. That's how he wields his authority and power. That's why we should not hold anything back in submitting to him. You know, if you look at that cross, friends, and you think about it, there is a massive gap on both sides of that cross. And here's what I mean. The the gospel, there's no way around it. The gospel is all about inequality. Radical inequality, that's at the center of the gospel. And it's not just a fact, it's the center of our worship because of the gospel. We celebrate, we boast in the cross, we boast in the gospel, and at the heart of the good news of the gospel is this radical, non-disappearable, non-erasable inequality between us and what Jesus has done for us. You see, on this side of the cross, the before, there is no way that we could ever prepay or earn the gift of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Amen? We cannot earn it. We cannot earn that willing stewardship, that willing wielding of His authority and power and glory to make Himself small and humble and as our servant. We can't earn that. We didn't earn that. That gulf between what we needed and what he did is infinite. It can only be filled by the glory of Jesus Christ. It has one occupant, one occupant only. It will always and only have that one occupant and we will be dancing in its glory for all eternity that this Lamb of God came on his own, gave himself on his own, that we did not earn what he did for us and just as there is another gap on the other side of the cross. Once we come to Christ, there is no way that we, through whatever kind of life we live, it doesn't matter how courageously for him, it doesn't matter how obedient or holy for him, there's nothing that we can do that can repay him for what he's done. It's unequal, it's unequal on both sides of the cross and always will be. And that is the reason that he can offer hope to any and to all. We exult in that inequality. You can't ever even things out with Jesus. You can't prepay and you can't repay. And the reason you'll have rest is because both of those gaps can only and will only be filled by the glory of the one who says to any who will come, come to me. It's a relationship not only of between unequals, but of great reversals, and I need to hurry. And I mean this in two senses. When you come to Christ, you are swallowed up by two great reversals. The first, and this is different from the preceding point, because what you discover when you come to Christ is that that Jesus is calling you to, into a relationship that's upside down and a relationship that's backwards. Let me explain what I mean. This relationship with Jesus that he calls us into is upside down. And, and, and let me just make the most obvious point I can about that, is that the reason he, comes, he calls us to come to him is because he's first come to us. And this is what I was alluding to earlier in the Uh, with respect to the prayer of confession, the movement of Christianity is from God down toward men. The movement of every other religion is from men up toward God. Either God is going to bring a righteousness down as a gift through Jesus Christ to sinful men, or men are going to present or try to present a, scare quotes, righteousness to God to gain acceptance with Him. Every other religion is this way, from the bottom up. But Christianity, because it's a religion of grace, is always top-down. It's upside-down. The good news of the gospel is not what happens when we love God, but what has happened because God has loved us. Christianity is not the good news that in Jesus Christ, God has made a way... For us to climb our way to God. For men to seek God. For men to find God. That's not the good news. Friends, God's not lost. He doesn't need to be found. We're the ones who are lost. The good news of Christianity is that in Jesus Christ, God is the omnipotently gracious and loving seeker of sinners. You see, it's upside down. It's while we were still weak, Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still weak at the right time that Christ died for the ungodly. Right, uh, We're still sinners, and how does God show His love? Romans 5 but God shows His own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And notice Paul says God shows His own love for us. He's using the present tense. So every time we look at the cross, every, he, wrote, he wrote Romans 5 about 30 years after Jesus was crucified. And he says, but God shows, present tense, his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for his friends. Every time you look at that, what God, God is that's not just two pieces of wood. That is God showing us his love that's real today and calls for your faith and for mine, calls for your repentance and for mine, calls for your willing giving of your life as a sacrifice to God and, and, and mine as well. is an awesome thing and this is love the apostle John says not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins it's a relationship that's, that's upside down and it's lovely because of that it's also backwards gospel is so interesting I was telling Clay before the service, I said, You know, I've been a Christian for 31 years. The gospel is inexhaustibly fascinating. God's heart is so beautiful. Listen, people live, spend their whole lives going to the Louvre over and over and over again, working in the Louvre as curators, walking the halls day after day. They spend their whole careers in there looking at these paintings and being amazed by all the art friends. That is a grain of sand compared to the Christian's right and title to walk the halls of the gospel with your Father. It's a backwards relationship in this sense that it's backwards to everything that we've been taught. It will not fit, the gospel will not fit neatly. The relationship that Jesus is describing here is a relationship with a master that is unlike any other relationship you have, because in every other relationship, you have to achieve a status in order to receive it. You have to make yourself acceptable in order to be accepted. You have to be loved. In or, you have to be lovely. You have to make yourself lovely in order to be loved. But see, the order of the gospel is exactly the opposite. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Your qualification for coming to him is your lack of qualifications. No one else talks to you. Hey, Give me a resume, and I'll give you this job if you put the worst failures and mistakes that you've ever committed on that resume. Don't put any good things on there. Don't, don't put any of your deeds on there. Just describe your needs. Who's going to give you that job? You have a relationship. You want to start a relationship with somebody. You say, hey, here's all my garbage. Let let me just give you the worst garbage I've got. Let me me swear at you. Let me lie to you. Let me take from you. Let me deceive you. I'm just going to do it all in the first 15 minutes. We'll just front load the whole deal. Nowhere. No place except one Because the gospel is God calling to us through Jesus Christ, saying, yes, it's backwards. I am owed the sacrifice for your sins, and I am the one who will give it. Do not bring your deeds, bring your needs. That's backwards. That's beautiful. There is absolutely... You know what that means? Friends, that means that if you are a non-Christian and you are saying to yourself, I'm drawn to this, uh, but uh, I'm afraid of the cost, what that means is that the only obstacles the only obstacles to being made a child of God and gaining an inheritance in God's eternal kingdom and enjoying the forgiveness of your sins and having God as your father and living with the rights of an adopted child of God, having your conscience cleared by the blood of Christ, that the only obstacles to you enjoying all of those blessings, the only obstacles are in your heart and not in God's. why would you hold on to them? Why would you hold yourself back from a Savior so great who was willing to make himself so low so that there would be no space that any sinner occupies on planet Earth that he has not made sufficient provision for so that he can look anyone in the eye Address anyone through His Word and know that there are no holes in His willingness or His power or His accomplishment to be able to provide an eternal shelter for them. Why would you hold yourself back? Why would you love your sin more than that Savior? It's not rational. Sin is crazy. God's love, the gospel, makes you sane. And finally, it's a continual relationship. Look at uh, Jesus' vision. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So is that a one-stop deal, Jesus? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me? Ah, that sounds more committed, doesn't it? For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This sounds like Jesus expects that when we come to him, we're going to come and stay. That what he's envisioning is not a touch but an embrace. He's calling us to learn from him and about him. Notice this? He says, Learn from me. And, and and it's also about him, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you remember what we've been thinking about over it's amazing how I mean, I didn't plan this, okay? I did not plan this. I am not that clever. Okay? But we have been thinking since uh, the, the the message from Jeremiah nine, the Sunday before the uh, election about the relationship between the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves, and r- really that has been the theme throughout Matthew, the second half of Matthew eleven. And again, we see it even in these verses. So, so what I mean by that is what Calvin talked about that that the knowledge of God. Uh, is what we gain the knowledge of ourselves from, that there is no true knowledge of ourselves apart from a knowledge of God. And as our knowledge of God grows, so our knowledge of ourselves grows. And the more we know of ourselves, the more we know of our need for God's grace, and so we come back to God. And therefore, we learn more about who God is in Jesus Christ. And guess what? As we discover more of who God is in Jesus Christ, we know ourselves more truly. You see how this works? Do you know how a radio wave gets from here to the Mercury messenger probe. Do you know how it gets there? Changing electric field produces a changing magnetic field, which propagates a changing electric field, which produces a changing magnetic field. That's how wave gets across space. That's exactly like the Christian life. The Christian life is not a one-time coming. It is a continual coming to Jesus. It is a coming and returning to Jesus over and over and over again. And progress in the Christian life is a continual conversion in which we are giving as much as we understand of ourselves to as much as we understand of Jesus Christ. And as we stand and embrace him, guess what we understand more of? Ourselves again. And we offer back... We offer back, having come to Jesus, we offer back to Jesus as much as we understand about ourselves. But our knowledge of Him is growing, and our knowledge of ourselves is growing over and over and over again, and that's because this is a continual relationship. See, in Lamentations, Jeremiah says that God's mercies are new every morning. And in Romans 12.1, Paul says, By the mercies of God... I urge you, brothers, to present your lives a living sacrifice And that's what Jesus is describing here. It's the same thing, friends. The mercies are new. We we follow Jesus. We come to him. We take his yoke upon us. We learn from him. We experience his gentleness and his kindness toward us as sinners. And our experience of that mercy and that gentleness prompts us again to offer ourselves again to Christ every day. And it just goes on and on and on continually and continually. That's the Christian life. That's what it looks like. Continual. Over and over and over again, coming and returning and returning and coming again and again. So, friends, let me ask you are you coming to him? Not have you come, are you coming to him? Are you taking his yoke upon you? How are you gladly presenting yourself right now to Jesus Christ as your master? And what are you learning from him? Learning. How are you discovering his gentleness? How are you receiving rest from him? If Jesus, if you were to ask Jesus, friends, whether, or if I were to ask Jesus whether your relationship with him is growing, what would he say? Think about that and return to him today because he's here again. He's here again by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for taking your greatness and wielding it to be our servant. We thank you for having the highest of hearts and also the lowliest of hearts. Oh, Lord, let us taste again your rest this morning. We pray in your name.